We are finishing our series, Out of Control, as Pastor Eric is going to come and share with us. And we're reading from Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, Bibles are there in the pews in front of you, or it'll also be on the screen. Uh, it's going to be in two parts. We'll be reading verses 21 through 24, and then there's kind of a break in that scripture, and the story picks up again in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And down to verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of, brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went into the, where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to, began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. He told them to give her something to eat. Well, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Happy Father's Day, Dad. My dad's here. Um, he'll be lingering around after the service. You can offer condolences. Happy Father's Day to all of you. I was thinking about Father's Day and reflecting on my God-given role and responsibility as a father and just enjoying that and uh, allowing my kids to, to say thank you and show their uh, appreciation. And I was thinking, uh, I was asked the question, what do you love about being a father? And I just reflected on how proud I am of my kids. I'm just so proud of the of even the little people that they've become to this point forward. I am just very proud of them. And I had sort of a mile mark moment as a dad recently uh, when my son Asher learned to ride a bike. My dad had a hand in teaching me how to ride a bike when I was young, and this was something that I wanted to do for my son. And I realized even a couple of years ago, and he's six years old now, a couple of years ago, I noticed that some of his friends his age were learning how to ride a bike, and so I felt a sense of urgency um, more than he did. I felt a sense of urgency that he needed to learn how to ride a bike, and so I was very insistent with him, you know, why don't we practice? And we practiced a little bit, but I think he fell one time or something happened, and he was afraid, and so from that point forward, even for months, even years past, he, or more than a year past, he was just shut down. He did not want to get on a bike. He didn't want to practice. He didn't want to learn. He just didn't want to have anything to do with it. 
I kept getting rejected for these opportunities to have this moment as a dad and teaching him how to ride a bike. Well, just a few weeks ago, we went as a family to one of the greatest stores on the planet called REI, if you're not familiar with that, backpacking, camping gear, all of that. We just came up, a new store in the area. We were checking things out, and he saw a bike that was around his size. He said, Dad, what's this? And he got on the bike, and soon, quickly he realized that there were no pedals or anything. He's like, what's going on here? And so I'm trying to explain to him as he's like wheeling around the entire store. I'm trying to explain to him, well, that's called a balance bike. That's what kids use to learn how to ride a bike. And I said, you know what? You're doing pretty good there. I think you're ready to learn how to ride a bike. But instead of shutting me down, this time he had a little smirk on his face. He said, yeah, yeah. Well, the very next day, check it out. This is what happened. Yes. All right. We finally did it. It took way too long. <laughs> Man, that was such a dad win. I was so proud of myself. I mean, I was proud of him. I was proud of him. But I was so happy. It was such a happy moment. As a dad, I got to experience that as a dad. It was great. And he was so happy. He just kept, I mean, he, we couldn't put him to bed. He was riding around all the time that evening. He kept saying, Dad, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm like, I know, me too. This is great. And we were caught up in the joy of the moment. We were just so happy in that moment. But then things changed because he asked me a question. He said, Dad, how far am I allowed to go now? <laughs> well, before, he didn't have these two wheels to go far, so we had very strict boundaries as to how far he could go on our street and the neighborhood. And I knew, I knew who those neighbors were, those houses that he was marking. I knew the territory. I had put my research into it. I've met those neighbors. He was in the containment zone. But now... His territory was expanding. Now he wanted to go at greater lengths, farther distances. And I knew that the further he went, the more he would be out of my own grasp, out of my own control. And yes, out of my own protection, but, but out of that, that containment. And I know, I know, and I had several people tell me after the first service, I know it never stops. <laughs> it'll happen again, and it'll happen again. And as my kids grow in their own maturity and in their independence, it's going to require me to, to let go a little bit. And there's that struggle as a dad, as a parent, that I face that is the, 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 the more that they expand in their territory, the more that they express their own independence, the more I'm going to have to figure out how to be dad, how to be the parent, how to be responsible and caring and nurturing and protecting and all those things I'm still supposed to be doing, but also to allow my children to grow and to have their own experiences and have their own independence. And we all face this dilemma. And it's not just for you dads. We all face this crisis. 
And I know that you have your best dad of the year mug or your hat that you, that you have. But we all face it. We all face that decision point, that crisis point of what to do when they're expanding their territory. And it's filled with a lot of fear. So I'd like to talk to us as we close off this series about relationships and how we struggle in our control of relationships. And being a parent, having that relationship with, between parent and child is probably one of the best examples. But this will, this will cover all kinds of relationships that we have. That whether it's our peer relationships or maybe a business relationship or maybe um, you're a boss or your friends or your own parents or whatever it might be, when we are in relationship with one another, when we develop care and, and love and trust, then we feel a sense of responsibility and we all hit that crisis. How much should I get involved? How much should I uh, tighten my grip? And how much should I let go? And we all face that. And some of us struggle at times with this. There's a phrase that was coined from a book in 1969 that became very popular in these last couple of years called helicopter parenting. Have you heard this phrase? Helicopter parents are the ones that hover over their children, do everything for their children in a sense of love and care and protection for them. And research shows that by the time they get to college, if they are raised in this kind of environment, there are actual connections to mental health issues for the people that are raised in these kinds of environments. You see it crop up a lot in, amongst high school students and college students. In fact, in the course of research, uh, college professors will, will recall parents calling them in their, uh, in their distaste for a grade or for some bad experience that their child is going, is going through. This came, became very controversial in 2013 because a 16-year-old was behind the wheel and drunk, and a tragedy occurred. He killed four people in an accident. And the trial went, went on, and the judge gave him the lightest sentence possible, uh, probation, for a couple of, of months. And people were in uproar. How could you give this 16-year-old this such a light sentence? And you might remember this, that the judge uh, recalled a word uh, as the reason for his light sentence, and he called it affluenza. Do you remember this? Affluenza. That this particular child was coddled and spoiled his entire life, that he had an unhealthy understanding of right from wrong, and so he, in the judge's mind, was not as liable as would other people that age, and therefore was getting a light sentence. Well, the story continued on. If you remember following this in the news in 2013, this young man broke his, violated his parole, and so the police were coming to arrest him, but, you know, mom had to get involved, and so she helped him sneak off into Mexico to avoid the authorities, and they were all, they were all found out and brought back into Texas, and it didn't work out too well for helicopter mom and for this, this child. We all experience that crisis point even though that's an extreme example, we all face this crisis point. How much should we let go? How much should we tighten our grip? Well, in Mark chapter 5, we arrive at a story about a dad. And this dad was extremely desperate. 
We know that his daughter was at the point of death. In fact, she was nearly dead. And the scripture doesn't exactly say it that way, but it says she, she is fighting for her life. But we know that things are so desperate because as our bird's eye view reading the scripture, we know how this ends, right? If you fast forward a little bit, when Jesus and his disciples are with Jairus, making their way into the home, they notice that people are already in the process of wailing and mourning. Now that would have been an expected thing, because the girl had just died. Except in that culture, there were professional roles specifically given to people to offer their, their sorrow, their wailing, and their mourning. You know, we, we have a set of expectations in our own society about how you grieve or how you handle a person's death, and those expectations grew into professional roles. And so if a loved one uh, passes away, we consult a, a funeral director and a pastor and a florist, and there's all these professional people involved in what we expect culturally when someone dies. The same was existed in the first century in Palestine there, except they had such a, a value on the outward expression of, of mourning and wailing that they eventually began to hire people to do that. People were hired to, and brought in, which signals to us that if the girl had just died, that means that the arrangements for the grieving process had already been in motion when she was still fighting for her life. And so Jairus, when he arrives to Jesus and falls at his feet and begs for Jesus to go and touch and heal her, this is his last resort. He is at the end of his rope. There's nothing more than he could do, and he is completely out of options, completely out of control. And so he goes to Jesus, and Jesus consents to go with him. Oh, the, the sense of relief or the, the twinge of hope that, that Jairus might have had in that moment because Jesus agreed to go with him to heal his daughter. But something happens along the way. And it wasn't in the part that was read for you, but Jesus gets delayed in his journey to Jairus' household. A woman who was also desperate decides to just reach out and touch the cloak of Jesus. She was desperate because she had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and had seen all the doctors and physicians and there was no way she had not received care or healing from her condition. And so in her desperation, she reached out and touched Jesus. Jesus sensed a release of his own power, stopped and attended to the woman and they had an exchange there. Now, that was an important part of the story and, and Jesus stopping and healing in its own right, but, but I wonder how Jairus was, was feeling in that moment. You see, time was of the essence. He needed Jesus to get there as soon as possible or else his daughter would die. And here is this woman who cut in line, who stopped Jesus on the way and was gaining his attention and maybe Jairus was handling it well, and maybe he was being respectful and honorable at the time. We don't know. But I imagine he was getting a little impatient. And then his fears came true. What he was afraid of actually became reality. People from the household arrived and told him the news that his daughter had died. And to make matters worse, 
those same people urged him not to bug Jesus any longer because it was a lost cause. She was already, she was already dead. And it's out of this situation, out of this circumstance, that Jesus speaks. And, and this next phrase, it's so short, but it's packed with so much meaning. And it's one of those phrases where you know that Jesus is speaking to this man, Jairus, who from that time, in that day, and in that situation, but you kind of get this glimpse when you read this scripture that this it tra- sort of transcends the moment and becomes sort of this universal message that we today in this place can hear from Jesus as well. And it, it begins with this. He says, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Some of your versions might say, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Now, in the original Greek, there's a little bit of a nuance with the grammar that I think will be significant. I'll explain it in a little bit. But the the nuance with the grammar suggests that fear had been ongoing. Fear had taken up residence with this man. Fear was a pervasive experience that this man was having and that Jesus is saying, stop it. No longer. Fear existed. It had taken up residence. And may fear no longer have its place. No longer be afraid. And that little nuance of the understanding will be significant. And I'll explain that uh, in, in just a moment. No longer fear. No longer fear. And what Jesus is doing there is calling forth something that we as readers... We probably understand, we say, yeah, he, of course he was afraid. He was about to, to lose his daughter. He was at the end of his rope. He was completely desperate. Of course he was afraid. But he calls forth something that may not have been as recognized as, um, as, as it should have been. You see, fear often presents itself in a hidden form. Fear often hides itself. And we think that we're acting maybe out of concern or care for something, but deep down inside, it's our own insecurity and our own sense of worry. Or sometimes when we're micromanaging the situation, we think that we're being prudent or thorough or careful, but underneath the surface, we're afraid. We're fearful. You see, on the surface, it could be a whole host of good things But underneath the surface, it could be driven by fear. And it's hard then to pinpoint and to reveal and to call forth that fear that really is there, driving us what we do, what we say. Uh, Pastor Steve last week referred to um, a few um, personalities, um, uh, TV personalities and and such, that uh, committed suicide. And one of those figures was Anthony Bourdain, and I know that Anthony Bourdain was a controversial figure. He was very outspoken about uh, politics and other likes and, and dislikes. But as a student of, of culture and, and of people, I loved his television shows because he would travel around and he would engage people. He would sort of document how, what sort of makes the people tick, and he would do that through food. And it was just a a fun experience for me, especially as someone who has traveled around in different countries myself. And so uh, after his death this past week, 
I was reading up a little bit about him, and I found an interesting quote that um, was, it, it might be a little bit offensive, but um, I'll just sort of, hopefully, I'm going to explain it, and hopefully that'll, that'll explain why I'm, why I'm referring to it, why I'm using it. Anyone vegan out there? Okay, well, here, here's what he says. He says, people's choice to become vegan from people that I've spoken to seems motivated by fear. Now, this is not to throw anyone, if you're vegan out there, if you change, ra- radically changed your diet in some form, this is not to throw you under the bus in any way, but this quote made me think a little bit that the people who have decided to become vegan would not do so for their taste buds. The people that would choose to become vegan would do so, maybe in a sacrificial way, would do so because they had good motivations for it. Like someone that decided that they were going to become vegan thinks that they're doing a good thing, whether it's a health reason or maybe they're conscious of the, the environment or God's creation or some, something like that. They're doing it because they think it's good. And here he's, he's observing that maybe it's motivated by fear. And it made my, my wheels turn a little bit up here to think, you know, that's how all fear works. Like we, we think we're doing a good thing. Like we think we're being caring. We think we're being concerned for the people that we are responsible for. Maybe our kids, maybe our employees, maybe our friends. We think we're doing a good thing. But deep down inside, what we're doing, what we're saying is driven and motivated by fear. And so in Jesus calling this out, it's an invitation for us to also call forth fear that rests under the surface. It's calling forth the fear that is underneath, driving what we do, driving what we say, even though on the surface, we're being such a caring dad. (laughs) We're being such a concerned parent. We're being so loving. We're being prudent and responsible and thorough. Why wouldn't we do that? Another show that I love is called The Prophet. It's uh, a business show. There's a man by the name of Mark by the name of Marcus Lemonis, who buys up businesses and he tries to turn them around. And I I love it because it's all about humans and all about people and how they behave and and all of that. And there was an interesting uh, episode that I watched recently. This, This man, he was a business owner, and he was micromanaging everything. Like he had to have his hand in every single part of the manufacturing process. And it was crippling his own business. And through the show, it sort of got revealed that this man was being over-controlling because when he grew up as a child, he knew that when he entered into his home, he was going to have to face his dad that was drunk and angry all the time. And he was subjected to abuse and was not in control, felt like he could do nothing to stop his dad from beating his mom or, or stop his dad from, from harming himself and others. And he was completely out of control. And so he, he, now that he was an adult, now that he had a family of his own, now that he had a business of his own, he was going to make sure that nothing bad happened. Isn't that how it works? We live out of this fear. And, and in our own minds, we think that we're, we're doing good stuff for the right reasons. we got to recognize the fear when it's there. So Jesus calls out this fear, the fear that exists no longer, and then he says this, he says, only 
believe. Only believe. And this grammar is the same as the fear no longer. It means that the belief was already there. And the, the more correct maybe understanding of it is the keep on believing. The, the, the belief was already there. I want you to keep on, I want you to end the fear and keep on believing. Which means that the fear and, and, and belief or fear and faith were taking up residence together. They were living together somehow. They were interacting with one another in in some way. The problem was that fear was the owner of the house. That fear was dominating the person. That fear was overcoming the faith that might have been there. They were there together. And Jesus says, stop the fear. Continue on with your faith. Let your faith take up residence. Let your faith become the dominant trait Let the faith drive what you're doing rather than the fear that exists there. And we look at this scripture and we know how the story ends. When Jesus says to Jairus, keep on having faith. Well, we know how it ends, so it makes a lot of sense for us. Yeah, keep on having faith, Jairus. We know Jesus is gonna heal your daughter. (laughs) But Jairus didn't know that. For all he knew, his daughter was dead And that those voices were correct. There's no longer, there's no more need to bother Jesus any longer. And yet, Jesus remains with him. We know how the story ends. But Jairus' call to faith had nothing to do with the miracle that was going to take place. Because when we look at miracles, and this is important too, when we look at miracles, uh, uh, the miracles of Jesus, there's a whole lot of meaning and there's a whole lot of impact with those particular stories. But the, the miracles serve to tell us who Jesus is and the power that Jesus has. And so... When, 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 when Jesus is telling Jairus, you need to have faith, he's not saying, you need to have faith because I'm going to fulfill your wishes. He's not saying, I, you need to have faith because, because I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. He told him to have faith because Jesus was there. He was with him. The call to faith precedes the reasons for the faith in the, in the first place. The call to faith goes before the things that we want to have happen. And so all of this, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, all of that is thrown out the window. The call to faith is right here and right now because the author and perfecter of our faith is with us, is available to us. The call to faith for Jairus was not because his daughter would eventually be healed. The call to faith for Jairus was because Jesus was there, and that was all the reason to allow faith to take up residence within him. So many times we condition our faith based on what God's going to do for us lately. And yet here is Christ in our very midst. We, can, we have access to him in, in his presence, and that is all the reason to be filled with great faith. There's a fun story in Matthew chapter 8. If you want to turn to that, I invite you to follow along. There's a story, and some of you know it well. Chapter 8, verse 26. 
there's a story about uh, the disciples. They're in the boat. They're in a boat on the lake with Jesus. And Jesus is taking a nap. Now, I like to cut the scripture off right there and say, see, Jesus takes naps. So Jesus is taking a nap, and they're on a boat, and a storm swells over them. And the disciples become terrified because this storm is about ready to take their lives. And Jesus is still sleeping. (laughs) And the disciples, they are just terrified, and, and they wake Jesus up, and they say, Jesus, we are dying. This is what they say. They say, we are dying. We're dying here. And here's what he says in verse 26. He said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Why are you afraid? You see that connection between fear and faith? Why are you afraid, you of little faith? See, they were so focused on the circumstances around them. They were so focused on the idea that Jesus was napping on the job. They were so focused on their own situation and their problems and their suffering and their pain and they're wondering where God is. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that place saying, God, where are you at? I've been praying about this forever. God, don't you see the suffering that I have? Don't you see the condition that I'm in? Don't you see these circumstances? Where are you at? And they focus on that notion, and they focus on their circumstances, and they forget that Jesus is with them in the boat the whole time. (laughs) And we do too. We forget that Jesus is there and available, and his power is there and available. We are called to faith because Jesus is here. And I don't know what's going to happen next, but, but Jesus being here is enough to live out this invitation to no longer fear and to continue on with our faith. You see, Jesus is calling us to let faith take over fear's house. We've built a whole house. We've arranged a whole house that is built and established and arranged based off of fear. And now Jesus is saying, let a new owner take hold. Let someone else move in. Let someone else come in and dominate the space. Some of you might be thinking about your children that came back after college. Let faith take over the house that fear built. Now, here's the interesting thing. In this whole series about out of control, we've been talking about giving up our control, relinquishing our control to God, letting God take over. And sometimes when we visualize that, we, we think about how we should just give it to God and just sort of go on a different direction. Like, you've heard this let go and let God. Um, There's a lot of truth to that. But a lot of times we get this idea, well, I I need to just give it to God and wipe my hands of it and just move on my way. But here's the interesting thing. So Jesus makes his way with Jairus and the disciples. They make their way to the house. They encounter all of these professional mourners and, and wailers. And Jesus gets in the room and says, you know, she's really just sleeping. And then they 
you know, this shows that they're just on the job. You're just kind of collecting a paycheck. They just laugh at him. That was inappropriate. They just laugh at him. And my favorite part, he just kicks them out. <laughs> he kicks them out of the house. And you would think that Jesus would say, you know what, Jairus? Thanks so much. I'll take it from here. It, we would think that, that he would say, hey, mom, hey, dad, great job, but I got it from here. But that's not the way all of this works. You know what? He invites Jairus and the, and, 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 the, and the girl's mother into the house with them. Jesus invites them to participate in the, in the work of Christ in the life of this little girl. God invites us to participate in his work in the midst of those that we're responsible for here on this earth. God invites us to participate in what God is doing. It's not just, I'll, I'll take care of it from here, go along your merry way. It is, come on into the room with me. We're going to do this together. And so for those of you who are parents out there, those of you who are bosses, those of you who are friends that feel this connection, this care, this concern for the people that you love, that's a God thing. God gave that to you. The call to give God the control of these relationships is not to just completely hand it over and say, see, see you later. It is to say, it is to answer the invitation of Christ to come in the room beside him and participate in the same work. And so for those of you that are parents, you participate with God in God's work for your children. For those of you that are bosses, you participate in the work of God in the life of your employees. For those of you, your friends, you participate in the work of God in the life of your friend. God invites us to participate in his supernatural, miraculous, amazing, powerful work. What a privilege. We're called to participate. So I want to uh, invite us to entrust, entrust our relationships to God. I want to invite us to entrust our relationships, to move out of our own control and to relinquish control to God by entrusting them into the hands of God. Yes, as participants, but to entrust them over to God. There's five characteristics of entrusting people that have come to my heart, and I want to share them with you. And uh, if you have a pen, maybe you want to write these down. But these are recipes, they're sort of ingredients or, or characteristics of, of entrusting. And as you look at this whole series that we've talked about with control, this really covers all of those different circumstances. Handing it over and trusting to God. The first is yielding. You know that word, right? We have the yield sign that is just a suggestion for some people. <laughs> right? When we are called to yield, when we see that sign that is meant for us, we are to hold back a little bit so another person, another car can go in front. We are called to yield to God's work. Yield to the Holy Spirit. Yield to what God is doing in the lives, our lives and the lives of other people. To yield to God. The second is to trust. It is trusting. To believe that in the care of God is the best place anyone could be. It's trusting. Now it's also forgiving. And if you want to put a little star next to forgiving or circle it or whatever, 
that forgiving is a pivot point for us. In trusting for ourselves in our own hearts, yielding God, trusting, it's also forgiving because when things don't go according to our own plan and when they don't go according to our own expectations, we often look for people to blame and that's where anger and bitterness set in and we look at other people Sometimes we look at God as the responsible party for the harm and the suffering of our loved ones. When we entrust to God, we forgive even when it doesn't go our way, even when things don't come about as we would expect them to. So that forgiving is a really important part. It's a a pivot point because when we're able to yield, when we're able to trust, when we're able to forgive, then what happens to the person that we care for, they become empowered. So entrusting is empowering. When we're able to to, to hand over, to entrust people into the hands of God, we're actually empowering them as they become adults, as they become better people, as they grow, as they mature. We empower them. We prepare them. Isn't that what parenting is? We're preparing them to become adults themselves. We're empowering them to stand on their own two feet and to navigate this crazy world with with faith. We're empowering them. We're not doing it for them. We're empowering them. And to me, that is what it means to love. And trusting is, is loving. Is loving. Jesus set the example of self-sacrificing love. That's what the Greek word agape means, to to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the other. That's what it really means to love. And when we're acting out of our relationships, out of our own sense of insecurity, out of our own worry, out of our own fear, we're not thinking about the best interest of others. And I would say, perhaps we're not loving them in the way that we should. It's loving because Jesus is the one who modeled a love that is giving of oneself for the benefit and the uplifting of another. So I want to ask, who or what are you called to entrust to God in this moment? Who or what are you called to entrust to God in this moment? Is it a... a, a, Is it the relationship as a parent with your child? Maybe a a child with your parent? Maybe it's a working relationship? Maybe it's a peer, a friend relationship? Who or what? A circumstance? uh, An argument? Who or what are you called to entrust into the hands of God in this moment? I'm going to close with this. And since I talk about my one child, I have to talk about my other because that's only fair. Uh, We have a little girl who's just one, and she's just now starting to take some steps, which is a lot of fun and scary at the same time. And there, I've kind of observed some ways of of her behavior. She'll ask to be be held up, and of course, you know, I'm a sucker. I grab, scoop her up, and I hold her in my arms. But I notice there's, if something scares her or something frightens her, I sense her grip, and sometimes it gets into my skin, like she's really grabbing on. I sense her grip out of that, that sense of fear. And I'm just sitting there reminding, I've got you, I've got you. 
You're not going anywhere. I got you. I'm protecting you. And I think that's our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Even though we are sitting in His arms, under His protection, under His guidance, under His love and His care, sometimes we feel like we still need to grab a hold of something. <laughs> we still need to grab tighter and grip tighter. And God's just saying, I got you. I got this. Who or what are we called to entrust into the arms of our Father this day, in this moment? Would you stand with me? I'd love to pray for you. Holy God, turn our clenched fists into open palms. Help us to give control to you. Yes, for our relationships that we are, that contain some ounce of fear or worry or insecurity, but all things that we feel the need to control. And God, maybe we've sensed that we're not in control and we just have this urge to grab tighter, but Lord, help us, fill us with great faith. Help us to end the fear. And as we are filled with faith, drawn closer to you, participating in your work and enjoying your presence. Thank you for making yourself available to you, your presence, your, your, your power. And God, we ask that as we rest and abide in you, that we would still see you working, that we would still see your miracles, that we would still see your power in our midst. Lord, remind us that you're there, that you're not napping on the job. Fill us, Lord, with great faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go in peace. Happy Father's Day. You are dismissed. Thank you.